0: This is your daily
1: real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Chris Shepard. I've been on Chris and AJ's show, and it's been incredible to get to know those guys a little bit and just see what they've accomplished. But Chris is an experienced young entrepreneur in Portland, Oregon, and the co-owner of Uptown Properties with his brother, AJ. He bought his first buy and hold investment in 2006. Aside from property management company, he's also into construction, brokerage, and syndication. It's incredible. We talked through the show a little bit about why they brought property management and construction in-house and how that's worked for them, even syndicating small units and why they have done that. They've syndicated an eight unit, I think a nine unit, maybe a 12 and up to like a 40 unit, but numerous small multifamily projects that a lot of people give a lot of pushback against, right? Oh, it's not worth doing that or whatever. And we go in depth a little bit about why you should consider that, right? Or why I would consider it as well. But then he goes into some value add tips that I feel are probably not utilized enough. And and one way specifically, they've created a ton of value at one deal very quickly. Even a couple other organizations that they're a part of that's added a lot of value to them and now is allowing them to add a lot of value to other people. I hope you enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to the show. I know you and I have connected a couple times in the past, and I think maybe I was on your show But I know you have some expertise that everyone in this business, whether you are a passive investor, whether you're an operator, you need to know some of these things we're going to talk about today. Either it's good questions for your operator or just for the operator to be thinking through some of these ways that you all are maximizing, adding value to these projects that you're working on for yourself and for others. But welcome to the show. Give us a little bit about how you got into this business and let's jump in.
0: Whitney, thank you so much for having me. I love your show. And I'm just so impressed how you podcast every day. It's incredible. Yeah. So a little bit about me. My brother and I, AJ started investing in roughly 2006. Our dad was a landlord and kind of showed us the business as we were growing up. We would be cool coating roofs down in Arizona if we ever got in trouble at school, but he would pay us. It was awesome. And I was just always so impressed how he never had to work. I mean, not necessarily never had to work, never had to go to work. So we took that mindset and I, through his, I guess, not having to go to work, I started playing poker in college. And I really learned how to take a calculated risk. And that pretty much easily flowed into investing in real estate. And I bought my first house in 2006. Not the best time to buy a house. I actually just listed that property a few months ago for slightly more than I bought it 15 years ago. But good thing that didn't stop us from buying our first deal. So AJ and I started investing in single family homes in 2009, and we've bought around 30 homes since then. And in 2014, we bought our first fourplex. We bought about 20 or 25 fourplexes since then. And then we jumped into... 8-unit, 10-unit, and larger properties. And we just started syndicating deals in 2019. And we did a 9-unit complex, and we've done a 12-unit complex, a 21-unit complex, and we just did a 48-unit portfolio back in June. That's a little bit about us. Oh, and we also started our property management company and our construction company. And our main focus with our business is to invest locally where we're able to vertically integrate all of our services. So we provide property management, we'll implement the value add plan through construction and yeah.
1: No, that's awesome. It's neat how you all have integrated the property management and construction or brought that in-house. And I want to talk about that in just a minute. But I first want to ask you, you mentioned you started playing poker and you learned how to take calculated risks. And I'm not a poker player, but haven't thought about in poker, calculated risks, right? It seems like it's all a risk or almost it's all a gamble, right? And is there a calculated risk in poker?
0: When you're at the poker table, you're really learning like where the good opportunities are. So if you're sitting next to somebody who you know is a poker pro, that might not be a great opportunity. That might be the really expensive retail property that has no upside. But then on the other side of the table, there might be someone who you know like, has never played and is asking the rules. And it's possible that that might be a ruse, but certainly something to find out more information on and maybe play a couple hands against him or her and see if there's an opportunity there.
1: Before you lay all your coins down, right? You better get some more information. It's interesting. But all right, so I wanted to jump in just a little bit. You all syndicated a nine unit in a 12 unit and up to like a 40 unit. And oftentimes people say, well, that's too small of a project to syndicate, right? Or it costs too much to do the legal side to make it worthwhile to syndicate something like that. What's your take on that after doing numerous syndications of smaller multifamily like that?
0: We found great deals and we've purchased so many small deals for ourselves. We know that there's tons of upside on those deals. Like, the nine unit we bought was like nine, three bedroom, two bath townhouses for 1.2 million. So it's like 130K a door. And now those are worth 230K a door. And we didn't raise that much money. And so yeah, the legal costs were expensive, but that was us getting our foot in the door, learning how to do the project, right? like learning how to do the syndication. And we just knew that there was going to be significant upside for our clients. And that's a worthwhile deal for us to do. So we knew that it was going to be a good one for our clients. And we got the property management revenue and the construction revenue, so.
1: I get that question often, or I hear that pushback against syndicating smaller projects like that. And I just always say too, hey, there's no room or no expense too high to operate in the gray, right? To operate unethically or not legally, any of those things, right? And so, hey, if you can still make a deal work and it's a nine unit and it costs however much in legal expense, hey, let's do it, right? But if it means trying to, wiggle around some regulations or whatever to get a good deal done. It's not a good deal is what I would say.
0: I completely agree with that. But just the added revenue, since we're like receiving revenue from property management and we're the general contractor too, I think that that made the difference for us on those smaller deals.
1: Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, I want to jump into property management and construction in-house, right? Did that come after you all started doing deals? Clarify that timeline a little bit. And was that like just by necessity or what was the order of doing real estate and then having your own property management and construction business?
0: I mean, in 2009, I was ripping out floors on our first deal and I was doing labor. And so as we started hiring handymen and like skilled laborers, Carpenters, electricians, plumbers, like it kind of grew out of that. Like we were finding the properties and the deals, and we would just get more and more work. And so, as the work got more complex, we needed to improve our systems and improve our contracts, comply with state regulations. So, that's kind of where the construction company grew. And then the property management company grew, I guess. A little bit out of the financing side of real estate. So, financing, I mean, is so essential to be able to grow as a real estate investor. When we started, we didn't have the cash to purchase all of these properties. I did have a little nest egg from poker money that I had won in college, but essentially, after our first couple of deals, that money was locked up and we needed to figure out how to access our equity. And so, we were able to get a couple refinances done. But then, once we moved full time into real estate, like we lost our income streams, and we couldn 't get a loan like we couldn't get a residential mortgage and so, on those smaller deals, the ones and the fours, we had to open up a property management company and that was like a dark time for four or five years because that 's how long it took for us to build up that business to get us to be able to qualify for a loan so we Got really creative with doing partnerships with friends. And we have a ton of joint ventures from that period because we just couldn't get alone.
1: Yeah, debt is so important, right? In building wealth and real estate and just getting a deal done, right? Typically, so important. Tell me any more depth you can provide around, like why property management is so tied to getting debt?
0: Well, we started the property management business and needed that income stream. So the beautiful thing about property management is you have a steady flow of income every month, whether it's $50 a door or $100 a door. We manage about 700 units and it's a steady stream. In 2011, when we opened the company, we managed about 9 homes that we owned. But when we offered our services to third-party clients, it took a while to build it up. But now growing that business has been extremely challenging, but also very fun. And just meeting so many amazing people along the way is really worthwhile.
1: What about bringing the construction in-house? I mean, you said you were doing a lot of that labor. Is that just something that just kind of grew as you all grew, as your portfolio grew? Or has that been something that you've seen that's worthwhile?
0: So it just has kind of grown as our portfolio has grown. And that's also a little bit of a focus of our company right now is building out kind of the asset management and construction side. But back in 2011, we got licensed. I got my brokerage license. And AJ got his CCB license and we opened up our property management company at that point in time.
1: Nice. I hear people often talk about should they start their own management company and some will say, you know, with their own construction company, whatnot, or that's just the only way to go because that's the only way you can have the most control and all that. And I would say that's almost market specific or depending on your relationship with your property manager, some are amazing, right? I mean, some that we work with are just incredible. And I wouldn't imagine trying to take that over right now. However, if they were bad enough and we couldn't find anybody, guess what? We're going to jump right in there and we'll have to do it, right? And we're going to get it done. But just the whole point is, man, you know, we have management companies who are really good, but is you're going to have to assess that yourself, depending on that relationship. But you all have become very good at just this value add component, which everybody hears about, right? Everybody hears about value add. But What does that really mean to you all? And let's dive into a few examples of how you all have just created a ton of value on some different projects.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Whitney. So first of all, value add, you can only add value when there's room to add value. And so finding the right deal is essential if you're wanting to start a value add project. How
1: do you know there's room?
0: I like to look at unit per door and just knowing what kind of a retail unit per door is, Going for, and then making sure that you're picking a property that's going to have some room for that unit per door. So in Portland, you know, you can get maybe 175, 180K per unit per door on a sale. So, unless you've got significant amounts of square footage, you're needing to buy at like 125, maybe 130K per door so that you can remodel those units and you can increase and use all the tools in your toolbox to increase the net income. Let's talk about some of those tools. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) So when we purchase a property, the first thing we always do is we send out rubs notices. So that's ratio utility billing system notices. And that's basically just for water, sewer, and garbage. And in Oregon, we can bill back as long as it's equal and it doesn't discriminate against any particular tenant. So we bill back based on the square footage for each unit. And so we take that water bill. So for that nine unit complex, I think the water bill is like $1,000 and each unit is roughly 1,200 square feet. So they each get a ninth of it. And that's the first thing that we always do. And then we're also looking at the rent roll and we're figuring out which units are the farthest away from market rent. And with those, depending on... In Oregon, we've got rent control. So we've got a few hurdles to deal with. But in Portland, you can send any tenant at any time, once per year, one rent increase. So when we will combo that rubs notice with the people whose rent is the lowest, we'll combo that with a rent increase as well so that we can start getting some of the units available to turn over. And then those are the low-hanging fruit just to kind of start working on the rent roll and getting your ratio or utility billing going. But otherwise, looking at properties, we try and get creative. The 21-unit deal that we recently did was this awesome garden-style apartment complex. I was on probably an acre and a half. And it was just this giant open area. And all of the tenants loved it because there's tons of grass. But I looked at it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's all of this unused space. And there's 21 units and you can run around the entire complex and look in people's back windows. And I'm like, well, let's fence this off and let's, first of all, put in a really nice fence so that the curb appeal is increased and the overall desirability of the property goes way up. That'll boost rents a tiny bit. But then we're going to provide a private backyard for each of the tenants and we'll be able to charge more for pet rent and we'll have less landscaping costs cuz currently the landscaping is like $1200 a month out there but when we cut the area in half i'm guessing we'll be able to get it down a little bit working with landscaping contractors is always very difficult but that is going to be a very small investment for a lot of rent increase and as those units turn over in probably the next 2 or 3 years I want to say that will increase the rent by roughly hundred dollars per unit, which is huge when you're looking at a twenty one hundred dollar per month rent increase that's roughly twenty five thousand and looking at cap rates in Portland they're roughly four and a half to five percent, and so twenty five thousand jumps up to about five hundred grand six hundred grand, and so that is a great little value add.
1: That is a great value add. And a couple of things there, I mean, I've heard over the last couple of years some different people that have started doing that. And I love that idea. And i was sharing sure you and I were briefly talking about before we got recording, I just like, if I was a tenant, I would love to have my own little space, right? In the yard, especially if I have a pet and I can just let them outside and I don't have to worry about them running off. They're inside the fence. That's incredible. That would be very valuable to me. Even if you have a small child, right? And they can go out there and play. You can hear them. You can even be sitting right there inside the room looking, you know, where you can still see them, but they can have a little space, right? To play and use some toys outside. Very valuable to me. I'm just thinking if I was renting, I would be willing to pay a hundred more dollars for that. However, you mentioned something else that I do not believe I've heard before on the show is reducing the landscaping cost because of this. I've not heard of that. Nobody's mentioned that before, I don't think. But one thing it made me think about, well, if the landscaping crew is not maintaining that yard, then is a tenant required to maintain the space? I guess they are, but they're required to maintain that space inside the fence.
0: Oh, absolutely. So any space that the tenant has control over, they're required to take care of. And that's just part of every lease. And that's also another like small little value add that, our property management company does on day one of an acquisition is that we're sending out our leases to the tenants and we call it a change in rules. And in Oregon, you can change the rules as long as it's not substantial. And so, just switching to kind of a standardized state multifamily lease, it's great because we know all of those rules and it's also just all confirmed to be legal every year by our multifamily association, Multifamily Northwest. And wow. so we're sending out those forms every year to the tenants, like to our entire portfolio, just to make sure that we're up to date on the current loss.
1: No, that's incredible. I was thinking too, you could even charge to mow that space for them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> even if it was 20 bucks a month or $25 a month, they will mow it twice if you have a gate. Hire somebody, push your push mower in there, knock it out or whatever, or even the landscaping crew depending on the cost of that, right? But anyway, I just think there's some neat thoughts around that space and how that could add value. Unfortunately, we're going to have to move on. We're going to run out of time, but I just think the listeners, anybody that has a multifamily project or property, you should be thinking about something like that. I just think it's a very creative way. Man, you all have added half a million dollars or so of value right off the bat to this project. So it's just incredible to make something like that happen. And what about since you all are managing so many different projects and just in the day-to-day operations of these deals, what about just preparing for a downturn and anything you see happening that may be concerned you over the next six to 12 months and how you are, are prepared for that?
0: so keeping an eye on our debt making sure that we're not trying to access too much capital and then and we're building up cash reserves i don't really know what's going to happen in the next 3 to 5 to 10 years but at this point aj and i my brother business partner we've reached a point in our career where we're like not willing to risk as much and so our risk profile has changed from when we started when we were very risky, trying to take on as much debt as possible, spending all of our cash reserves on the next deal. And we were very fortunate that it was on a big run up from 2009 until now. But now, this strategy that we're kind of employing in building up cash reserves it's less related to what I think is happening in the economy and more related to just where we're at in our real estate careers.
1: Cash reserves are so crucial. We're so big about, man, we're going to have so much reserves. I've been scrutinized in the past about our reserve budgets for certain projects and people say, "Oh, that hurts your returns. I'm like, yeah, maybe a little bit, but you're going to sleep a lot better. And one specifically a week later is when COVID hit, we closed on a big project, had a million and a half dollars just in reserve budget. And people were like, that's crazy. And then, they shut the country down. And guess what? Nobody's saying a word about those reserves then. Anyway, yeah, I just couldn't agree more about not being over leveraged and having proper reserves. And man, that's the only way that you're going to survive, right? When times are not only just tough, but man, things keep happening. It's those that have the most cash are going to survive typically. But changing gears a little bit, how about any daily habits you have that you're disciplined about that have helped you achieve success
0: daily planning. I'm not perfect about it, but I love Brandon Turner's intention journal. And actually here at about 15 minutes, I have a small group of our team that I'll be coaching through just creating 90 day goals. So we do little sprints and then we come up with a weekly goal and then we create our minimum next step to getting closer to that weekly goal. And Hopefully at the end of 90 days, we've made a bunch of little 1% gains and we'll have accomplished our 90-day goal. That's
1: awesome. I know Brandon and I have worked together a little bit. Yeah, it's that consistency, right? And I've talked about it a little bit. It's like, man, even if it's 1%, like every day, you don't think about that, what that does over a very short period of time. But what about if you had to pick one thing, number one thing that's contributed to your success?
0: Taking action, just willing to take that risk. When it comes to... Playing poker, I really think that being able to go all in on a 60-40, that's almost a coin flip, but it's just being able to just believe in yourself and believe that you're going to be successful. And you know what? If you do fail, you're going to learn so much from that experience that taking that risk was worth it.
1: How do you like to give back?
0: We do a lot of coaching. So I'm involved in entrepreneurs organization. And I've got a team of young business owners that I'm coaching. And then my brother is involved with NARPM. And NARPAM has a handful of charities. He's going to be president here soon. And he'll pick his charity, and they do a lot when it comes to the charity of the year. Wow.
1: EO, just highlight a little bit what that is, in case the listeners haven't heard of that.
0: It's entrepreneur's organization. It's a group for business owners who want to learn more about growing their business. And there's kind of a young group called Accelerators. And there's smaller businesses who want to grow into one of the larger businesses and get into the regular organization. It's a great group. It's really helped AJ and I out a ton. And I owe a lot to when we joined, the people that we met really took a lot of time out of their day to help us.
1: Yeah, I love hearing about different organizations like that. I've heard different groups or different people that are part of entrepreneurs organization. And it seems like a great thing. I've not been a part of it personally, but it's incredible how you joined and different people were just feeding into you, right? and helping you and now you're able to coach some other people that are getting started as entrepreneurs so appreciate you all giving back in that way and even just sharing that potential opportunity for the listeners to think about their entrepreneur organization as well oh chris been a pleasure to have you on the show Just thinking through, you started with playing poker and learning how to take calculated risks, but now you all have done so well in real estate and growing your property management business and construction, bringing that stuff in-house. That's no small feats right there. Just congratulations to your all success. I know that came with a lot of long, long days to say the least. But even there's some of the value-add things you talked about, I mean, fencing in the backyard and just the discussion around that. I hope the operators that are listening will think about that. That's some great value-add that I feel like most have not taken advantage of yet but grateful for your time today how can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you
0: thank you so much whitney for having me and you guys people can get in touch with me we've got our podcast that's Westside investors network or just win and then uptown properties uptownpm.com and yeah come check out our podcast thank you thank you for listening to the real estate syndication show brought to you by life capital